welcome to the latest Fifth Step podcast. Today I'll be talking to Fifth Step CEO Darren Ray uh, about why the future is flexible in the world of the fourth industrial revolution. Um, we've talked about the uh, fourth industrial revolution in previous podcasts. Darren always it's commonly known for IR um, and the implications for, uh, for financial services companies, uh, professional services companies. Um, I thought it was an important topic to uh, come back to in 2019, um, and just to find out, are we indeed on the brink of the, the so-called next fourth industrial revolution? I think we're beyond the brink, actually, Chris. I think the fourth industrial revolution began in 2010. That's where I actually believe it began, and there's a number of articles now uh, that are coming out that are starting to track the spend on what many industry um writers consider to be fourth industrial revolution spend. So you know, things like machine learning and artificial intelligence research and things like that. Mm. But the recent survey showed, I think, that since 2012 there's been something like $650 billion worth of uh, spend on uh, so-called four IR technology in the, in the US alone. Yeah, I think that really feeds into um, and gives credence to the argument that I've had because I've been saying about 2010 being the, the turning and the pivot point for the fourth industrial revolution for a number of years now. And I think that those kinds of figures uh, measuring the spend from you know 2012 in this instance really give credence to that fact and the existence of the fourth industrial revolution. Because let's not forget... Industrial revolutions are very difficult to spot when you're in the middle of them. Sometimes it's very obvious, you know, we can look at the history of industrial revolutions in Europe, for example, you know, sitting here in London as I am at the moment, you know, we can think about the the third industrial revolution, you know, the, the transition to automated manufacturing, for example, uh, and the, the transition from weaving um, cloth and making cotton uh, into sheets and uh, other materials, into fabrics, mm. you know, back in the 1700s and things, you can think about that transition. And at the time, there were some pivotal points, but I think we only see those pivotal points as uh, historical, so we only see them in retrospect. Sure. It's very difficult, I think, I believe, to see some of those things as they're actually occurring, because some, what appear as small changes right now could actually be pivotal points as we go into the future. So, you know, do you think, is it possible to read some of the signs and signals and, and project some of those into the next five years? I mean, in terms of what, you know, the fourth industrial revolution might mean? Yeah, I think there is. And I I think the biggest change, and it's, you know, mentioned as part of that statistic you gave earlier on in terms of the amount of change or the amount of spend on 4IR technologies and change, but machine learning is a massive change. And it's sometimes called deep learning now, and it's often confused with artificial intelligence, and the two are quite different and quite separate. Um, machine learning basically means a, a, an algorithmic approach, but something that is very data-led and data-orientated. So the more data it has and the more data that the process can absorb, the more accurate it can be or more realistic or more lifelike it can be in its decision-making. Um, and that also allows the the algorithm to improve and to regenerate and to be improved by programmers, typically. IBM Watson, that's, that's that a, is that an example of machine learning? Yes, it is. Um, so IBM Watson, many people might remember this from the US television program Jeopardy, uh, where it actually won uh, playing against some uh, previous winners, as I remember. 
um, the previous winners being all human and Watson being a machine. And there were some early stages, you know, if you've, uh, if you've ever watched anything about this uh, particular topic, then you will have perhaps seen some of the early stages where they were training Watson to answer some of the questions, and it got things, some of the things quite staggeringly wrong. But over time, it managed to learn and refine and uh, actually understand uh, Jeopardy, and it was able to, you know, win um, in the end. So, but Watson's been repurposed uh, many times over now, and it's actually used for a very, very wide number of disciplines from, well, acting as a claims agent and a claims assessor as part of um, some insurance, life insurance. Um, we recently, yes. um, and that was probably about a year ago now, perhaps 18 months ago, but there was a case of a, a Japanese life insurance company who had replaced 30% of its claims team by using Watson to do the assessments on the, on the claims. Now, to begin with, it's perhaps only doing the assessment of the lower-level claims, you know, the, the simple ones. But I certainly wouldn't favour joining that team as, uh, as part of that claims team because, um, you know, Watson's only going to get smarter. It's only going to improve in its ability to look at claims and understand claims and to be able to process that information ever quicker. So that first 30% of the team that's replaced, I would suggest, is you know, merely the beginning. And in a number of years' time, it'd be likely that it'd be more likely that there's only thirty percent of the team, original team, remaining rather than thirty mm, percent um, sure. being replaced. Well, actually, last night, uh, no, funny you should mention the, the get Jeopardy, I suppose, uh, which is a game show. But um, I was watching University Challenge last night for a US. Just trying to show off for now, a, for a, a US audience, they might not um, necessarily know that, but a UK audience. But it was the final, um, and Fred, you don't know University Challenge has been going on for decades and decades, and was recently reintroduced. And the final last night was Edinburgh University against uh, Oxford University. Um, and Edinburgh won, actually, quite a, closely, uh, a close race. And I actually was watching it with my daughter, and I, I got seven questions right. Did you? I'm showing off. I really am sure. I did a little jig after every time I got a question right. My daughter was laughing hysterically because I was like, I've got another one right. <laughs> Brilliant. But the serious point I want to make is could we see in three or four years Watson? Uh, being playing a game on University Challenge and beating Oxford or Edinburgh University. Well, quite possibly so. I mean, the the ability to for uh, machine learning systems such as Watson to absorb larger amounts of information and to be able to sift sift it and categorise it very quickly is really what machine learning is all about and deep learning is all about. So. Um, absolutely. Now, whether it will be able to learn to do the jig in the same way that you did, Chris, I think is really the... It's going to take thousands of years of uh, machine processing to... Well, thousands that. of years of genetic abuse. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but uh, so, from, so, looking in, ter in terms of what it means then for businesses and companies, are we really looking here at uh, major changing, changes potentially in working practices? I think we are, and I, the... The reason for the title of this particular podcast, The Future Being Flexible, is that that's really the way that the working practices are changing now. The desire for you know, many of us to have, have desires to be able to purchase things either as a service or to be able to buy them you know, very flexibly, you know, um, Uber, you know, Lyft. Um, being prime time or, um, examples of that, indeed, you know, other um, services like TaskRabbit, where you can actually pay people to do uh, a particular job and you pay them 
um, you know, in a way that you both agree, but it's a piecemeal uh, process, but you're able to buy that service and um, someone's willing to provide that service and they're perhaps local to you, they're perhaps geographically very remote from you, but it's all made possible by the interconnectivity provided by the internet and by you know, systems or services such as TaskRabbit. Mm. You know, Uber's another very disruptive example. Um, you know, there's many, many you know, cities in the US. Um, you know, London's had its issues with Uber as well. There's many other cities around the world who have yeah. had issues with Uber because they're so disruptive in their way of working. And that's the kind of thing that we're seeing. So this the gig economy is very much... Um, it's very much enabled by the, the the building blocks of the fourth industrial revolution, is my belief. But that's pitched at the sort of you know, lower paid, so-called lower paid jobs, really, where it has been today. That's right. Can we see that sort of you know moving higher up the pay scale and you know transforming you know, lawyers, accountants, absolutely. bankers? Is that is that going to start happening? Yeah, absolutely. Really, in the next even in the next like three or four years? Yeah. Well, I mean, for for lawyers, for example, that is already starting to happen, not in that lawyers are being replaced, but there's an increasing use of artificial intelligence stroke machine learning um, systems to help um, understand and spot issues in contracts before you know, before there's a major review by, uh, by a lawyer or drawing attention to it. Now, at the moment, they're supplementing and enhancing the lawyer's ability rather than replacing a lawyer, but I believe that it's not going to be too long before knowledge workers, and that's really what we're talking about here, you know, a prime example of that being a lawyer, but it's not going to be long before knowledge workers start to be replaced. And I think the claims handlers in that Japanese life insurance company uh, were perhaps the first casualties, or the first major casualties in that uh, in that example. Yeah, yeah. And it's also going to lead to changes in services and products, isn't it? That's the, that's the, the other key, key, uh, key issue for, say, a, an insurance company or an accountant. Yeah, it absolutely is, and it's going to. It does lead to uh, organisations wanting to outsource uh, very distinct and atomic pieces of their, um, you know, their business and their work, um, and it therefore leads to different services and different capabilities being uh, being offered. Uh, you know, the, this is very topical for Fistep to talk about because one of our models has been to actually be able to provide, you know, f- flexible and fractional. Uh, services of very senior people. You know, they're the kind of roles that can't be replaced presently by machine learning, but organisations increasingly want to be able to break things down to a more atomic scale. So, you know, we either want to do a project or perhaps we just want to provide um, a cover, you know, some coverage for six months or 12 months during a particularly busy time or, you know, just to make sure that something gets done the right way. So the benefit of uh, large amounts of experience can be conveyed in that way. And that's very much following the way that the gig economy is developed and the way that the fourth industrial revolution is going to you know, move things along with roles changing and different services being offered to um, to those different organisations and uh, and people. Taking that to it, so I don't know if it's a logical conclusion, but could that mean we might, you know, one of the next employees, employees of fifth step in say two or three years' time, could be a kind of virtual Darren Ray that goes in there? I don't think yeah. the world is ready for, <laughs> for another Darren Ray. Let's, uh, let's be honest, but yeah, quite possibly, Chris, because as you're able to train and to um, you know teach um, principles uh, to a machine.
Yeah. Um, you know, then perhaps there are assessments that could be done. There could be the benefit of you know many years' experience, and not just one person's experience, but many people's experiences could be condensed into um, you know into a machine, allowing for you know uh, consulting and senior executive advice to be offered by this machine. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of you know startup companies and disruption, which is a, a major um, uh, topic for de- debate, all sorts of conferences that I go to, certainly in the technology world or the ins- primarily the insurance world, um, you know, data is almost free now. It's been uh, commoditized you know, at, at, to such a, a, an amazing extent. And in fact, some people say it's you know I think it's truism is that it's the new world, but it's uh, it's certainly um, more more important than it's ever been. Uh, it, this is going to change. It's going to change the nature and outlook of companies. They need to be more strategic, don't they? They absolutely do, and but but they need to be able to absorb um, large amounts of data by not and not be burdened by it. And let's remember that data is not information. Um, for data to become information, there needs to be some insight and some process that it goes through. Now, historically, that's been a human process. Um, to look at the data and make assessments and to be able to make judgments. Now we have the ability for machines to provide some of those judgments too, or at least to augment the abilities of a human to be able to pull large data sets together in a far, far quicker time than any human could. Mm, With those kinds of capabilities, organisations absolutely have to be more strategic they have to be looking at data, so they have to be more data-led, and they have to be able to turn data into information, information that's relevant to them and to their clients and to their environment far more quickly than they have been able to historically. So what are people going to you know, need to do to survive an industrial revolution? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, the, the key aspect really is uh, a Darwinian... Darwinian <laughs> Darwinian even. Even, yes. Thank you. Um, Principle, really. Um, It's not necessarily survival of the fittest in this particular case, but it's the survival of those who can innovate and understand and react to this new environment. So some of the advice that we've been giving here on this podcast should be useful to people to start that process, to start them looking at their own organisation. How can we adapt? How are we going to be impacted by... You know, the fourth industrial revolution. Do we understand what the fourth industrial revolution means for our industry? Is it the death of our industry or is it the making of our industry? So all of those things need to be taken into account. And that means that those who are knowledgeable about the fourth industrial revolution uh, within your organisation or those who are open to learning more about it, you know, should be learning more about it. And they should be you know, working with um, you know, uh, external uh, sources of information such as Fifth Step uh, to help understand what they should be doing and how they should be changing their strategy. So key is the ability to adapt to the new environment um, and to be able to turn data into information and to be able to react to that Mm, and to be able to strategize around that. It's absolutely key. our listeners may be surprised to learn that actually some research does go into these podcasts. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I occasionally, you know, you know trawl the internet and yep. look up interesting facts and new new concepts mm. and terms. And so I know you do as well. I, I, I hope they're not too surprised. By <laughs> <that>. <laughs> We're coming across probably fallen off a few of the <laughs> a few have fallen off the tube, the chair in the tube somewhere. <laughs> but um, 
yeah, the, the new some couple a couple of new words that I, I, I've come across were uh, the concept of redefiners. I mean, apparently, redefiners uh, or bus, uh, businesses who consider, consider themselves to be redefiners are working to change their core business models. Um, whereas there's a new another concept is industry explorers who are they're looking to break new ground in new markets or sectors. I mean, are these concepts that you, you're aware of, or would you put yeah, them absolutely. in different, different ways? No, absolutely. No, absolutely. Redefiners, um, uh, they are uh, are reactionary to the fourth industrial revolution, but really they're looking at ways to redefine their organisation. In some senses, they may be looking at it from the perspective of becoming their own competition. So, um, you know, how can we innovate our original core business out of existence because we're, you know, transforming it and transforming the industry beyond uh, what our original offering was, um, uh, but they are an important part of this uh, disruptive approach and mentality that exists um, at this time. Partly because of things like the fourth industrial revolution, and as a as a consequence of that, but also as a consequence of the ubiquity of connectivity uh, yes. uh, that we were speaking about earlier on as well. And in terms of industry explorers, so they're breaking new ground in, you know, in, in new markets or sectors. Um, you know, that's presumably is that, is that a better strategy? Or? No, it's not a better strategy. It's just a different strategy. You know, I wouldn't like to you know give that general advice to anyone that one is better than the other. It depends on the organisation um, at any one point in time. So, one organisation it may be better that they're a redefiner because yeah. they have the capability. Another uh, organisation it may be better um, that they're. Um, you know that they're an industry explorer; that they're looking to either create a new industry or bring two existing industries together to form, you know, a hybrid of the two. That's an example. Okay. All the, all the alternative to that is to adopt neither approach and uh, oh, the and ostrich then, approach and, and, and hope for the best. Yeah. Uh, look, hoping for the best is uh, you know is a rather short-term strategy, as I'm sure many listeners will appreciate. Um, it's viable for some organisations, but if you want your organisation to survive, you know, beyond, you know, the next uh, ten years, uh, as an example, then I think you've really got to be more innovative and more strategic than that, uh, than just thinking, oh, it's never going to happen. Uh, you know, these uh, these you know machines are never going to be as smart as I am. Mm. Uh, kind of approach. Um, that may be true at the moment, but it's not going to be true for that much longer. There will be areas where machines will uh, be the de facto standard for business operations and business processes as they are today. You know, uh, many of our listeners are perhaps uh, old enough to remember typing pools, for example. For younger listeners, this is where you used to send uh, documents or tapes, typically, uh, where you'd spoken, you'd dictated um, a letter and you'd send it to the typing pool and there would be a, a pool of typists who would then type up your letter into a form and fill in the gaps and make sure it was spelt correctly, uh, you know, produce it in um, duplicate or triplicate, etc. And then you'd eventually get your copy back for signing and sending off to a client or whoever the intended recipient was. Well, those kind of things just don't exist anymore. You know, everyone has a word processor on their computer and it's not uncommon now for people to be 
you know, writing letters themselves or have, perhaps have an assistant write for them, but the idea of a typing pool has gone away. Yeah. And that kind of, if you were in the typing pool business in the 1950s or 1940s, for example, you might have thought that's exactly where the future was. Everyone was going to need to communicate more. My dad, he, 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 when he was working for the, you know, um, his business, he still had a typing pool yeah. as late as, as the 80s. 1980s. Did he really? Yeah, well, yeah, going into the 1980s. Yeah, yeah, but that's okay. You know, those kinds of things um, sometimes have to survive for a specific reason. But in the case of the fourth industrial revolution, the kinds of changes that we're seeing taking place now, organisations need mm. to be ready, they need to be prepared, and they need to make eyes open decisions. Mm. If you're going to keep your typing pool, to reuse, you reuse that metaphor, then do so as an active and eyes open decision. Don't do it just because you're burying your head. I myself. actually, I'm old enough to remember, I went for a job, uh, I started out as a journalist in my early career, and I went for this job at the uh, Surrey Herald, I believe it was, he used old-fashioned typewriters, and never having typed on a typewriter before, what I've had to do this interview, and I had to uh, write up a short, a short news story, which was meant to be about 250 words, and unfortunately I couldn't really get the typewriters to work, so I was typing about 20 words, 20 words every two minutes. <laughs> and you won't be surprised to learn I didn't get that job. But I, uh, I think the Surrey Herald, if they're still in existence today, I'm sure they um, they still consider that to be a wise decision. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think they still are around that If if I'd have continued being there, then I'm sure it would have been complete mayhem. <laughs> but uh, in terms of like, you know, what four AR means for you know for companies in 2019, one of the other one of the other issues is that people challenge they face is that a lot of companies in markets that we're operating at the moment are looking to cut costs significantly um, you know they're trying to shave costs off the bottom line or off their IT the temptation for them is they're coming, coming under pressure from like the C-suite or you know the CIO certainly is from maybe from the CEO um, but you know there's, there's, a, there's a danger obviously that they might be missing out on the potential prize of investing in new technology to cut reduce costs, costs across the business isn't it? Yeah, and there's, there are opportunities and well, opportunities to um, increase costs and opportunity to reduce costs through you know for, uh, fourth industrial revolution uh, technologies. And I think it's important for organisations to make the right investments and to understand and make these eyes open as decisions that we've been speaking about during the course of this podcast and previous ones for that matter. So. If you are going to make that investment but you're under pressure to reduce costs, then you need to be making the the right business case and looking for the right solutions to the the challenges that businesses face at that point in time. But it's also an important thing to remember, I guess, is that you don't cut your way to growth. You know, very few organizations can actually you know keep cutting costs and um, increase productivity and increase profits for example so you do have to make investments but they have to be smart investments and again that's why many of our clients are coming to us and working with us about these topics because they're looking to make the case they're looking to make the business case they're looking for the evidence that these sorts of things are actually happening and um, also perhaps looking for some feedback from the rest of the market in terms of what's going on and how organisations are actually coming together uh, yeah, uh, and using and this technology. It's also, and of course we, we've talked about technology a lot, with algorithms and machine learning and stuff, mm-hmm. but with the, what we haven't maybe talked about so much is people, you know, in terms of like hiring the right people, onboarding those, upskilling existing employees, but you know, to, could this step help um, companies to, to find the, the, the right tech savvy people to help them you know, make, make this 
this lead to the fourth industrial revolution? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's part of the role that Fifth Step plays with many of our clients. Um, in fact, our clients tell us that it's one of the things that I really appreciate about, Fifth, appreciate about Fifth Step is our ability and desire to help them um, improve, you know, however long or short a period of time we're actually spending with them, but actually help them improve. So if it's something like um, you're looking at the, the strategic hiring for an organisation that's uh, perhaps at the forefront of some of the four IR uh, benefits or challenges, let's say, um, then of course Fifth Step can help and actually um, you know, work with uh, both HR, also IT, but other areas of the business to actually help them understand the challenges they're likely to face, um, the challenges perhaps they are facing, and then look at how the strategy of that organisation is changing, in, including the hiring strategy. Okay. All right, well, I think that pretty much concludes uh, today's podcast. I mean, this is, this is a bit of a taster, really, for a, um, a, 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 meet, a presentation you'll be giving in a, in a few months' time, isn't it, Darren? I don't know if you want to uh, tell the listeners about that uh, as an early, early plug for that. An early plug, yeah, absolutely. So, yes, um, I'll include the details, or we'll include the details of the event. Uh, it's a breakfast event uh, based in London, so if you are based in London, then uh, come along. We may well record it, though, so we'll push it out as a, uh, a webinar and push it out as a podcast as well subsequently. Um, but on June the 20th, uh, we're holding an event in London. Um, the details will be in the show notes um, so you can actually see uh, and, and and indeed register. The title um, for the future is flexible, isn't it? That's, that's right. The future is flexible and how to form uh, strategies in a changing and uncertain world. So, yeah. yeah, it's very much, and we talk about some of the topics of the Fourth Industrial Revolution, as well as the, uh, the changing economic clock and how organisations need to be prepared for that as well, because that's another big change. Over the next uh, 10 years, we're going to see a, a massive uh, boom cycle coming through, which may be sound uh, contrary to what uh, many economists are saying at the moment, but um, we believe that's, that's coming and that organisations need to be prepared for that. So the future is not just flexible; it's also optimistic. So, which uh, in these uh, these times, the uh, difficult times of the you know, constant news about you know, the, the dreaded B word, uh, no doubt that might, might cheer a few people up. So, uh, so we'll tune into that. Um, obviously, if you want to read uh, more about um, you know some of the insights that uh, Fifth Step provides, you can visit the website, which is www.fifthstep.com. So that's F-I-F-T-H-S-T-E-P.com or uh, check us out on Twitter at uh, Fifth Step. Yeah, you can also find us on LinkedIn as well if you search for Fifth Step or Fifth Step Limited. Uh, you can find us there. And if you uh, want to give us any feedback, um, please do. Um, full details in the show notes. And of course, leave a review on iTunes. That's a great way to enable other people to find us. If you think we're doing a good job, do please leave a review. Um, it's really helpful if you do that. And why not um, suggest this as a podcast to uh, friends and family? If you think they can get value from this podcast as well, do please pass us on. We really want to reach as many people and help as many people as we can um, in these changing times. Excellent. Good stuff. Dave, thanks a lot, Darren. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris.